We have a long text this morning, Colossians chapter 1. The very end of verse 5, the last two words. Picking up right there, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it, as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, a brief text, perhaps an obscure one, but I pray that you will teach us with words of wisdom and understanding, and counsel and strength, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Holy Spirit, come and bring revelation this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Paul's letter to Colossae. Uh, what a remarkable letter. And he writes this as a passionate argument. We, we've used the word polemical or polemic argument. It's a passion and impassionate plea. And that's what the letter to the church at, at Colossae is. And it is a letter arguing for a Christocentric life. A life really where Jesus is at the center in first place. Uh, the one that we think about and look to and consider and talk about. That He is everything to us. And Paul writes this letter for that purpose. Last week we began looking at the colossal Christ with that Christ hymn, verses 15 through 20 of chapter 1. And how amazing and astounding. I mean, Paul pushes further, I believe, here than in any other previous letter as he talks about and describes Jesus as absolutely incomparable and supreme and sufficient. And we looked at those things last week. But today I want to pause, stay in chapter 1 a bit longer and consider not just or only the colossal Christ, but a life centered on Christ. So knowing who Jesus is and and considering all of His grandeur, what does that mean for us? How does that mean we live? A life in which Lordship in Jesus Christ is given first place. A life in which a servant of self becomes truly a servant of Christ Jesus. You see, something happens when we give our lives to Jesus, when we, when we make that decision for Him, and it's simple, and if you've ever, never made that decision, you'll have a chance to do it this morning. You know, a choice for Jesus, just to say, I'm going to start today, Lord, I am, I'm going to step out in faith and believe You. I'm going to trust that, yes, You were in fact resurrected. I'm going to believe that You came as God in the flesh. And Lord, I'm declaring this morning, I need You. I need Your forgiveness. I need Your grace. So simple to start right there. And in the moment you make that declaration, in the moment a person actually chooses Jesus, something absolutely remarkable happens. We don't necessarily see it with our eyes. We don't even sometimes feel it with our heart. We make a declaration and and we assume now there's a change. But what does that mean? My friends, a transfer has taken place. A transfer immediately goes into effect. A transfer that is absolutely stunning. You military personnel, you get it. You get your PCS orders. You know, your permanent change of station. And off you go. The CO comes in and says, here are the orders, and you know, you're moving. Honey, pack up the kids. We're out of here. And it's, it's funny to me. It's called a permanent change of station, but it's not, is it? 
you're Navy, you know, well, that's probably going to be for another nine months, maybe two years, maybe three at the most, and then you're going to go to another permanent change of station. <laughs> There's nothing permanent about it. I've come to love that in this fellowship, that there are so many we've had to see go, and that's heartbreaking, but they always come back. And we always welcome back our, our military personnel as they go from place to place in permanent changes of station. Well, the transfer I'm talking about, the transfer in Christ Jesus is permanent. It is absolute. And it's described by Paul in verse 13, where he says, He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. I have come out of a limited domain, a region, if you will, into the bright, vast, panoramic, glorious kingdom of Jesus Christ. I've come out of a place with limited dark authority into a place of grandiose, absolute, bright authority. That transfer is an instantaneous transfer that happens when we give our lives to Jesus. It's not partial. Okay, so it's not one foot in, one foot out. It is not optional. Well, I'm going to give my life to the Lord, but I'm going to hold on to a lot of things myself. No. It's what happens. And when you, when I as as believers, when we truly comprehend it, it ruins us for mortal life. Mortal life. Mortal life is described in thesaurus.com. I looked it up. I like words. And I like synonyms, and I like to see how things are painted differently. Thesaurus.com talks about mortality. It gives these synonyms for mortal. Check this out. Dire. Fatal. Grievous. Grim. Lethal. Malignant. Terrible. Bitter. Ending. Extreme. Grave. Great. Killing. Last. Terminal. Death-dealing. Deathly. Destructive. Intense. Merciless. Monstrous. Mortiferous. I like that one. I'm going to use mortiferous more in my language, I think. Murderous, noxious, pestilent, pestilential, poisonous, relentless, remorseless, ruthless, severe, unrelenting. Now, either someone at thesaurus.com was having a really bad day, or even your basic linguist understands that mortality is terminal. That mortal life is dire. Paul says it this way in Romans 6.12. He says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Do not go on presenting the members of your body as to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Don't keep doing that. Why? You've been transferred. A transfer has taken place. Paul writes, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. That's the transference. That's what's taken place in us. But some don't seem ready to accept that. Some, while willing to accept Jesus, are not really able to or willing to let go of the old mortal life. But the reality... The reality into which we speak good news is dire mortality. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying that we've been transferred so that we can speak good news into the lives of those who have yet to be transferred. Who don't get the transfer. Don't even understand what truly can take place by a simple confession of faith. If you can just for a moment wrap your heads around this idea 
of being transferred from the, from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God. I mean, is there anything greater? That's the message of the gospel of Jesus. That Jesus died to transfer us out of dire, mortal, mortiferous death, out of a meaningless existence, into one that is significant unto all eternity. Uh, I, I, I can think of nothing more exciting than that. And that's why Paul says, Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, what we're going to talk about this morning is what takes place after the transfer. So if you've never given your life to Jesus, you get a chance to hear what it's all about. But if you have, please listen to me. If we... If we did even half of what we're about to talk about, it would blow the lid off of Whitby and Fidago Island. If we did even half, just this church fellowship, if we did even half of the very simple principles that we're going to look at this morning, it would change this entire world. The world that we touch, the world that we interact with, We are going to experience the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this world can, if we would trust Him for it. So, some simple things to think about. Enter a man by the name of Epaphras. Epaphras, it's a good Greek name. He's a little-known servant of Christ. Now, I'm pronouncing it finally in my life the right way for the first time. You know, you can go online and get all kinds of stuff. There's a correct, uh, a correct pronunciation, and I think we owe it to this man to pronounce his name correctly. It's not Epaphras, it's Epaphras. And Epaphras is a faithful servant about which we know really little. We only have three verses that list his name. But they're significant. Look at them, verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant. Then we see his name again at the end of Colossians chapter 4, verse 12. Epaphras, who was one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Epaphras. The last time we see his name, the only other time we see his name in Scripture, he's not listed in the Acts of the Apostles, but he's mentioned by Paul in the letter to Philemon that we studied recently. Verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you. And that's all you get. But listen, three churches, one in Colossae, one in Laodicea, one in Hierapolis, would never have existed if not for Epaphras. The letter that we're studying right now to the church at Colossae, we may never have received at all. It might not have been written if not for Epaphras. If not for the fact that this one servant of Jesus accepted his transfer orders. Did what he was called to do. Went where he was sent. Epaphras. In my book, that ranks him high in the who's who in the kingdom of God. This is a name that should be known by all of us. A name of honor. I've got a book at home called 50 People Every Christian Should Know. 
written by Warren Wiersbe. There are several books like that out. You can find in Christian bookstores or online. 50 people every Christian should know. 100 people every Christian should know. And they're good books. In fact, I'm really high on, on Christian biographies because you see how these other people lived their lives and did remarkable things in the name of Jesus and, and for God. People like Jonathan Edwards used in the Great Awakening. Hudson Taylor, who, who started the Inland Mission to China. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. D.L. Moody, who I've talked much about. Amy Carmichael, her story is mind-boggling. People like A.W. Tozer, Oswald Chambers. These are people, honestly, we ought to know because they had such an influence on the very lives of faith that we live right now. But I would add to the book, Epaphras. Again, he's obscure. Not many have heard of him. If you have, it's because you, you know, blazed by him in Bible reading. But Epaphras is highly significant. Why? Well, Paul wrote about such a person in Romans chapter 10, verse 14. He said, how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. The servant of Christ Jesus has Epaphras feet. Does what Epaphras did. You may never feel like you could be a Spurgeon. I don't. I read some of the sermons of Charles Spurgeon. They blow my mind. I think, wow. How did he write such things? I read my utmost for his highest. Oswald Chambers. And I think, what a profound thinker at such a young age. He died, I think, at 47. And, and yet wrote these amazing truths that, that people still pour over today. I can't be like one of them. Can you be an Epaphras? Can you be a beloved, if obscure, faithful, bondservant of Jesus Christ? Now I want to repeat something we talked about on Wednesday. In fact, I'm going to repeat a couple of things because I wanted everybody to hear and understand these things. Go back to chapter 1, verse 5, and let's begin there. Colossians 1, 5, at the very end again, the gospel, and then verse 6, which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. First thing I want you to know, I'll give you four things about the servant of the Lord as seen exemplified in this man's life. Number one, the servant of Christ is a spokesperson. The servant of Christ is a spokesperson. Might seem obvious to you, but listen, Paul wrote in Romans 10 verse 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word Christ. He didn't write, hearing comes by the word of Christ, although that is what most of our Bible translations say. If you read it in the Greek, it's very literally, faith comes by the word Christ. By the spoken word Christ. In other words, if you want faith to come, speak Christ. Talk about Christ. Share Christ. Faith comes by hearing the word Christ. Isn't it interesting that Jesus is called the word made flesh? He's not called the compassionate action made flesh. He's not called the kindness made flesh. He's called the Word. Because the Word must be spoken. 
And more than any other thing, it was the preaching of the Christ in person and in proclamation that literally changed the world. It wasn't just the behavior that comes with it. And I'm not downing the behavior of a Christian. I'm saying that it's one thing to behave as a follower of Jesus Christ. It's another thing to talk about Him. To be a spokesman, a spokeswoman. And that's what every single one of us have been called to. It's not a job of the pastor. It's a job of the church. Spokespeople for Jesus Christ. Man, Jesus hit Asia like a neutron bomb and He never went there. Asia, as as Paul describes here, was radically changed, increasing in all the world, constantly bearing fruit, he says. And Jesus never set foot there in his entire life. But the word Christ was spoken, and the change happened, and in its wake left uh, love and compassionate service throughout the region. But it was the word spoken that brought the impact. The word Christ... When I'm sick and I'm lying in bed, all kinds of things go through my head, so you're going to have to deal with some of that this morning. But I was pondering this, the impact of the Word. It's not enough just to say, well, you know, we need to be in faithful Bible study. No, we need to be proclaimers. But something has happened in the last century, really, of the church that's altered things a bit. If you go all the way back to 1870, in fact, from 1870 to 1920, there was a movement in the church, and people still talk about it today, and it still affects the way the church does things today. It's called the social gospel. And the social gospel was all about taking gospel principles of charity and social justice and applying them to society. It was expressed in such ideals as Charles M. Sheldon's book, In His Steps. Anybody ever read In His Steps? Okay, a few of you have. Not many, actually, today, which is surprising. You know the phrase that comes out of the book. What would Jesus do? Because the book is all about a group of people in a small town who say, let's start living life by asking that question in everything. What would Jesus do if he were in my shoes in this situation? The book was not written to spawn bracelets and necklaces and t-shirts and logos. It affected a generation of people, the social gospel. And and it was a good thing. It came out in politics. The whole uh, labor reform movement uh, happened because of the social gospel. Like child labor laws were set into effect because of the social gospel. Um, the, The living wage was put into effect because of the social gospel. In the 1930s, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal was put in effect because of the social gospel. And we're still paying for it today. (laughs) Problem with the social gospel is when it gets away from the biblical gospel, the spoken gospel. Social gospel is fine. But if the social gospel is employed without the preaching of Christ Jesus, then all is lost. A poor person can be fed, can be housed, can be cared for, but if they never hear the name of Jesus, they're still going to hell. You've got to preach Christ. We must be spokespeople of Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. We are not just to act like Jesus. We are to declare Jesus. To speak Christ in whom is salvation. 
If we don't speak his name, what good have we done? Well, I've done a lot of good. Can you imagine Paul entering a village, a township, a region, and offering social programs but not preaching Jesus? Can you imagine him keeping silent about the name and nature and person of Jesus Christ? The servant of Christ is a spokesperson. And note that in verse 7, Paul doesn't refer to, to Epaphras as a faithful servant of Colossae. He refers to him as a faithful servant of Christ. Because Epaphras knew to speak the name of Christ. That's why the church began in Colossae. Because he spoke Christ, and the servant of Christ is a spokesperson for Christ. And don't look around, because Jesus is telling this to you this morning. It's not Pastor Rick's job to be the spokesperson for the Bridge Fellowship. Oh, Rick will talk about Jesus. I just need to get people there. Hey, they may never come in the doors of this church. They may drive up and see the word Christian and see the building and go, (laughs) no. And we used to say it was easier to get people into a barn because they didn't know what they were coming into. (laughs) But you speak Christ. You tell of Jesus. As I've said so many times, the point is not trying to make members of a church fellowship. We love being together. We want people to join us and and experience the joy and the presence of Christ among fellow believers. Of course, we need that encouragement, but we need to speak Jesus Christ. Now, listen, if you're involved in some kind of service work, some kind of helping uh, job or social services, I am not saying that that's not a good thing. I'm just saying don't be silent. Don't assume that they will get that you are emulating Jesus. We cannot act in the name of Christ without speaking who He is and why He came. I mean, if we only serve in the name and never speak the name, how far will our efforts go eternally? Think about the only only miracle in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew 14, Mark 6, Luke 9, John 6. There's only one miracle that is mentioned every single time by every single gospel writer. It is the feeding of the 5,000. A very significant miracle. Because in that miracle, when it happened, Jesus had them all sit down. You know, love to have been there. It'd be fun to actually be one of the disciples and be as clueless as the rest of the guys. When Jesus says... They're hungry, why don't you guys give them something to eat? Are you kidding? There's 5,000 men and we haven't even counted all the women and children, Lord. You give them that? Do you see a golden arches around here? How in the world do you expect us to give them something to eat? All we've got here is an anchovy pizza. You know, fish and bread. So Jesus breaks the bread, blesses it, starts handing it out with the fish. And keeps handing it out and handing it out. And everybody is filled. It's a remarkable miracle and it freaks the people out. In fact, that day and that moment, they wanted to make him king. Why? Because they saw manna. Because no one since Moses had given bread in such a fashion. And it was like manna from heaven. He's he's passing out bread. This is messianic. This is the prophet of Deuteronomy 18. He's the guy. He's got to be our king. Let's make him king. And of course, what does Jesus do? He withdraws. The next day, they go looking for him. Watch what happens. John chapter 6, verse 23. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. 
And so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into small boats, and they came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? See, he had walked on the water the night before. They didn't know this. Verse 26, Jesus answered them and he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. I am not your pizza guy. You're coming to me because you just want more free food. Do not work for the food which perishes, he says, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. And therefore they said to him, well, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, and this is so complicated, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's it. So much for religion. Just believe. This is all Jesus said. Believe in Him in whom He has sent. Believe in the Christ. But if there are not spokespersons for Christ, how are people going to know who to believe? Speak the name. And don't understand me. Serving in Christ is a noble effort. Doing acts of kindness is fine, but it is a cop-out of Christianity light. To think that doing good without proclaiming Jesus is all there is to it. That's why Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by His appearing and by His kingdom, preach the Word. Preach the Word, Timothy. Preach the Word. Be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Peter says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give account for the hope that is in you. Let me ask you something. How do they know there's a hope in you? Well, because you just look so darn happy. No. Because they've heard you mention the hope. Because you have spoken Jesus. And God is so good to me. Why do you think that? They ask. And then you're ready to give a defense. To explain who Jesus is. To be a spokesperson for Christ. Early on in this fellowship, we we said missions must be a high value. In fact, we declared that, and and the very first offering that we ever took, 10%, we decided we're going to tithe off the tithes. So we took the first 10% and it went out. 10% that wouldn't wouldn't bless us, but would, would bless and work and serve for the kingdom. And then through the years, we've increased that, and it's 20% today. I still am looking for 50%, and people say, that's ridiculous, Rick, and I say, praise the Lord. I would love for the day to come when over 50% of everything financially that comes into this church does not bless this church, but blesses the kingdom. And that can happen, by the way, if our focus is not right here. But we made this this whole focus. We said missions, it matters. And I do believe it does. Missions and service matters. Well, then several years back, a couple of guys came to talk with us. They were part of an interfaith service coalition on Whidbey Island. And they wanted to invite us as a church to be involved in all of their efforts. And they handed us these these, uh, two or three page handouts that kind of described their mission and their focus and what they were doing. And I'm reading through this and they're talking to us. And one of their bullet points was we don't talk about Jesus because we don't want to offend the people we're serving. 
And I questioned them about that. And they said, oh, we, we're, we're doing it in the name of Jesus, but we're just not talking. We just don't want to speak His, His name. And I said, well, then I'm out. We're not interested. We are not going to waste time, resource, and energy serving without doing so in the name of Christ. We're not going to do something without being able to speak the name of Jesus. To, to put a muzzle on the, for Christians to put a muzzle on the mouth of Christians. Don't speak Jesus. Just do the social gospel. Just kind of, you know, just be the gospel. Well, I'm sorry. There's only one way you can be the gospel. You've got to speak it. Do you know what the gospel is? If you don't know, memorize 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 through 5. Christ died for our sins. He raised from the dead according to the Scriptures. That's it. That's the gospel. Tell people about it. Man, if we can't tell people about it, and I'm making this, this is a general rule for this fellowship. If you don't like it, there are plenty of other great churches around that you can go to. But for this fellowship, we will not align ourselves to or support any mission or service organization that does not preach Jesus. That has to be why. I appreciate the applause, but I'm not saying it for the applause. That has to be why we do what we do. And people say, well, that seems awful stiff. I mean, shouldn't you just be about good works too? Why? What is the point? If someone's dying in their sins, I can be as good to them as possible. I can feed them, care for them, love them. But if they're still dying in their sins, what have I done? Jesus said in Mark 14, 7, you always have the poor with you. And whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. And our intention is to give Jesus to rich and poor alike because he is what we need. So be a spokesperson of Jesus Christ. The servant of the Lord is. Epaphras, or <laughs> Epaphras, was. Epaphras was a simple servant because he spoke the name of Jesus. Look also at verse 7, uh, verse seven back in chapter 1. He says, just as you learned it from Epaphras. Learning. The discipline of learning. The servant of Christ is not only a spokesperson, but a student teacher. A student teacher. In 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 6 and 7, Paul describes a group of ladies that he refers to as, brace yourselves, ladies, weak Women weighed down with sins. A bunch of weak-willed women. And he describes them as those who are always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. I think it's one of the reasons why some call Paul a chauvinist. They shouldn't. Because if, if I read that and I was a woman, I would be so offended, I would never let it happen. And I think that's why Paul wrote it. To challenge you ladies not to be those who are always learning, always into the next latest thing, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Here's the thing. Solid faith does not come by magic, mysticism, or osmosis. Faith in the Lord Jesus, a growing, vibrant faith, doesn't come because I sit back and wait for it to come. It comes from disciplined learning. It comes from a willingness to be in the Word, to be about the Word, studying, like you're doing, like we're doing right here this morning, to have Bibles open and be in. But it's more than just that. And I was a kid who grew up going to church. I think I shared this with you all once, years ago. 
being a freshman in, in a Bible majors freshman course, a New Testament course, and sitting down, we were handed our first test. And I thought, well, I spent my whole life going to church. I'm a student of the Bible. This will be no problem. It's a no-brainer, no study necessary. And I got an F. It blew my mind. My friend Chris got an F+. <laughs> because he wrote at the end of the test, I choose only to know him, Christ Jesus and Him crucified. So, so he got the plus, you know. We all failed miserably, horribly, and the teacher's whole point was to show us how little we knew that we thought we knew. And that's a problem in the church. The servant of Christ is a student teacher. We are both students and we are teachers. It's 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Be diligent with this. Be engaged in study of the word of God. The servant of Christ is a student teacher. Whoa, 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 whoa. I don't know enough to teach. I've heard it too much. I, I can't be a teacher. I'll serve in any way I can. But, you know, to teach, that's another. I'll show up for the service day. I'll be there for the work party. I'll drive. I'll cook. I'll clean. Hey, that's all important stuff. But I've heard people literally say, don't ask me to lead a Bible study. I don't see as where followers of Jesus Christ have a choice. Where did we ever start to think that we have a choice? We are all, every one of us, to the last person in this room called to be student teachers. Which means we're learning, which means we're students, which means we're being fed and taught, absolutely. But we're also teaching what we know. But I don't know very much. Great, teach that. Teach what you know. It's more than simply being a spokesperson, more than simply sharing the gospel. It's a willingness to engage people in the gospel. I understand that people are overwhelmed sometimes when they look at the Bible. Man, it's a big book and there's a lot to it, right? It reminds me of when Cheryl and I were young married and, and I massacred more Walmart press board furniture because I didn't want to read the directions. I mean, you know, stuff put on backwards and upside down and sticking out this way. And Cheryl will say, yeah, that, that's actually happening last year. Don't pay any attention to her. So the problem was I hated reading the directions. Don't make me read that stuff. It was boring, time-consuming. Oftentimes it was lacking. Is the Word of God boring, time-consuming, lacking? I will give you time-consuming. But this word is not boring, nor is it lacking. I want to read you something, and this is a passage, Hebrews chapter 5, that people don't like to read because it's uncomfortable. It's a favorite passage of pastors who are seeking to guilt-trip their fellowship. So let's go there now. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. Now, I'm not reading this to guilt trip anyone, but to show you something, so pay attention to this. Hebrews 5.12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers... Oh, wow. Okay, see, here's a problem. Paul's not talking to Timothy. So you can't throw it off on Paul is telling Timothy to preach the word. He's saying, by this time you collectively 
plural. You all ought to be teachers. He says, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. Everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. Solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have trained, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Can you teach the word of God? Show of hands. How many are willing to sign up to lead a small group Bible study right now? Praise God. Those of you who raise your hands. All right. And and Rachel, I'm serious. Okay. We're we're following up on this. Next Sunday, we're going to get a list out. Because my friends, the time has come. The time has come for us to boldly go where few Christians have gone before. And to start teaching. To start inviting people into our homes. And you know what our vetting process needs to be? Are you willing? Are you willing? We'll get you the info if you need it. We'll get you the study materials if you need it. But are you willing? The same problem that we see in the church today, and this is why I show you this passage, was in the first century. In the first century, Paul had to ask the question, Why aren't you all teachers? Why by now haven't all of you studied enough that you can be teachers? But you're still on milk. And that's the same thing that goes on in the church today. So, brothers and sisters, we're not really that different. But servants are student teachers. Where would the church be without Epaphras? Epaphras, who learned it from Paul, and then perhaps he taught Philemon, who then started a church in his house, which then started another church in Colossae and another fellowship, and then you have the church of Colossae, and then they say, well, let's let's get this out to Hierapolis. So they start a church there, and then let's get this out to Laodicea. All because one servant, one obscure man named Epaphras was willing to teach. As Paul said, you learned it from him. They didn't learn it from Paul. I mean, if you miss that, I've said it now several times. Paul didn't plant the church of Colossae, or Hierapolis, or Laodicea. If not for Epaphras, those churches would not exist. But because of people like Epaphras who said, yeah, I'll have a Bible study in my home. Yeah, I'll I'll teach the Word. I I mean, such as I know. I'll take what I know and I'll teach that and I'll continue studying and learning. And if they ask questions in my small group, guess what I'm going to do next week? I'm going to study and tell them the week after. Because he had such a simple perspective and a willingness to teach the Word of God. We see the the Gospel exploding throughout Asia. I mean, exploding. It, It blows my mind. I said this on Wednesday night. Do you realize that the amount of time from Paul's first missionary journey to his writing of Colossians... Where he makes the comment, let me repeat it, in verse 1, it is in all the world constantly bearing fruit and increasing. It's everywhere. The gospel has exploded. This is spiritual nuclear fission has taken place. And the reason for it is people were willing to teach. Paul taught. Epaphras taught. Philemon taught. They just began to share what they knew. And as they shared, it exploded. And listen, since his first missionary journey to the writing of Colossians, about 12 to 15 years, you realize that's the age of this church? 
That hit me like a ton of bricks. We've been here 13 years. And I thought, in 13 years, you know, you start, you start to get lackadaisical and go, wow, God's really done some stuff. And He has. God's, God has done some marvelous things. He has. We've seen numerous people saved. We have. Wonderful. But the gospel reached all Asia in the same amount of time. Boom! Why? Spokespeople and student teachers. Just like Epaphras. Why not right here? Why not see it happen right here? Well, go to chapter 4, verse 12. As we continue to learn from this simple servant who was himself both a student teacher and a spokesperson of the Word of Christ, chapter 4, verse 12, tells us Epaphras, who is one of your number, that is a Colossian, by, that's his hometown, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sent you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. Number three, absolutely vital, please get with me on this, the servant is steadfast in prayer. Oh, Rick, that's so simple. The servant is steadfast in victorious prayer. And there is a difference. Flying flat on my back last night, Barb Gilmore gave me a call. She'd heard I've been sick all week. I've been dealing with this thing. It's been this kind of chronic issue. Frustrating. And she, she asked me a question. She said, have you received that? I mean, did you, did you receive that illness? You know, the doctors say, hey, you have this. And we go, oh, okay, I have this. This is now characteristic of my life. You know, I am Pastor Rick Crawford. I'm a father of six. I have a lovely wife. And I suffer from diverticulitis. That's just who I am. She said, have you, have you accepted that? And I went, I said, you know, I think I have. But I don't want it. And she said, well, let's pray that way. And we began to pray. She doesn't know, but I hung up the phone and I'm laying there with tears in my eyes just going, praise God. Hallelujah. Victorious prayer. How many of our prayers come from a place of defeat? Oh, Lord. It's just been a hard day. Really? Do you have all your limbs? Oh, Lord, I'm really struggling. Listen, there are all kinds of prayer. Let me, let me point out a few that tend to happen that maybe you're familiar with. One is pious prayer. That's the prayer that you pray in a group of people that becomes a platform for, for proclaiming your own holiness. And we do it subtly because we don't want anyone to really know. You know, we, we kind of preach our way through the prayer. Throw in a couple of verses here or there. You know, and pious prayer. Then there's gossip prayer, and that's typically the prayer that lasts for about 30 seconds after you've been talking about someone for 45 minutes. Gossip prayer, which is more about passing along juicy information than it is truly concern and praying for victory. Then there's wandering prayer. This is my favorite kind. It's when you wonder if the person praying is ever going to land the plane. They just go on and on and on. And, and you're like you're like ten minutes into the prayer going, I haven't heard anything new since like eight minutes ago. It's just going on and on. Listen, Jesus said you will not be heard for your many words. Repeating yourself over and over and over is not going to make your prayer more spiritual. Some of the most spiritual prayers in the Bible happen instantly, one sentence. I think of Nehemiah. Nehemiah who stood before Artaxerxes 
as his cupbearer and took the risk, Artaxerxes looked at him and says, you look a little down today, Nehemiah. And Nehemiah just, in that moment, the Bible tells us, Nehemiah prayed. And then immediately he said, well, I am down because my people back in Judea are still suffering needlessly. How long was he praying? I mean, can you imagine if he said, well, hang on, King, just a minute here. Oh, Lord. (laughs) And went off for like 15 minutes. I mean, he just, he prayed. You can do that. And I'm, I'm making fun a little bit here, but gang, and, and then there's healing prayer, which, by the way, I take out of the category of the others. The others are, tend to be our fleshly praying. Healing prayer is legitimate, important. And when we pray for illness, we pray for brokenness, we pray for hurts and pains and problems, we pray that chains would be broken, we pray healing prayer. And my friends, that is so important. But please, understand, we are commanded to healing prayer one time in the New Testament. Of all the commands to pray, of all that the Bible teaches us about prayer, only James chapter 5 tells us to pray for healing. All the rest of the prayer, all the rest of the prayer is victorious prayer. Now healing prayer can be too. But what kind of prayer dominates our thinking? My point is simply this, that too much prayer is focused on the physical self in the temporary now. Too much prayer rises from defeat rather than out of victory. Biblical prayer, if you start to just flip through the New Testament and look at all the commands to pray and all the references to prayer and all the times Paul says, I'm praying for you in all of his letters, what you see is 99.9% praise, thanksgiving, wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, revelation, power, boldness, confession, forgiveness. That's victory. That's prayer. We pray as a people who are in the kingdom of the beloved Son, not in the domain of darkness. We've been transferred. And so the servant is someone who prays victoriously, who prays expectantly, who prays boldly knowing the God to whom we pray has already won. That victory has been paid for. And we as simple servants are called to pray that way. How did Epaphras pray? Well, we know how he prayed because Paul overheard him laboring intensely, laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. And what did he say? That you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. We don't read about people like Epaphras praying for Uncle Reuben's rheumatism. Or Aunt Batty's bunions. We hear him praying. That the people will stand. That they'll be victorious. Listen to how Paul prays for the church at Colossae. Back in chapter 1, verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask, here it is, that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father. That is victorious prayer. And that's how we're invited to pray as servants of Christ. Steadfast in victorious prayer, student teachers, spokespersons, and finally, lastly, number four, 
Get this, the servant of Christ is selfless. This, by the way, is why I chose to talk about Epaphras today, or use him as an example for us. The servant of Christ is selfless. Chapter 4, verse 13. For I testify for him that he, that is Epaphras, has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. He has a deep concern. This, this epitomizes Epaphras. Deep concern is polun ponun in the Greek. And it literally translates intense pain. Epaphras had intense pain for his people. Intense pain. Emotionally. Spiritually. The intense aches of Epaphras are for all those who are back home. Remember, Epaphras is with Paul in Rome. So he's praying for his people. And Paul begins to hear this. Such that he mentions it to them. Yeah, I've heard him praying. I know how much he loves you. There is no question in my heart how much Epaphras has passion for you as his people. And I ask you, who do you pray for that way? For whom do you pray with such intense concern and longing? And what are you praying for them? Are you praying out of defeatism or are you praying out of victory? Are you praying that they would know the knowledge of God and the will of God and live for Jesus? Be filled with the joy and patience and steadfastness and endurance that we are called to live? And by the way, are you praying for people who are doing well? That's something we covered a little more on Wednesday. We do a lot of praying for people who are suffering. How about for those who are doing great? Notice that the people at Colossae, when Paul's writing to them, he's not writing to people about suffering. He's writing about their walk with Jesus. And he said, we pray for you all the time. Why, Paul? They're doing well. Exactly. Exactly. But Epaphras has this this deep concern, this, this selflessness. But listen, that deep concern is not the selfless part. It's not what caught my attention. Yeah, he has deep concern for the folks back home. Okay, I get that. But there's something more going on that points to the selflessness of a servant of Christ Jesus. It is entirely likely that Epaphras himself was under house arrest. Why do you say that? One verse, Philemon 23, that says, Paul calls him my fellow prisoner. Now, you can spiritualize that. Sometimes people do. Oh, you know, he's just kind of with Paul. And Paul's actually the one in prison. Epaphras is just there. But guess what? That phrase, my fellow prisoner, is sunak malatos. And that word in the Greek means literally co-captive, or we might say cellmate. This is my cellmate. And that struck me like a ton of bricks. That this guy... Epaphras, if indeed he himself was under arrest in Rome, and I'm not saying absolutely, but there's inclination that perhaps he was, that even in his own imprisonment, he was deeply concerned for Colossae. He didn't see his bars, he didn't see his chains, he saw his people. He was absolutely selfless. Looking back home, caring for them, imprisoned, but his deep concern is for the three sister churches in Southwest Asia. But listen, get this, Epaphras is not focused on Epaphras. Who is he focused on? 
You might say Colossae. And we'd be wrong. Because Epaphras was focused on Christ. That's why he prayed so intensely for Colossae. You don't become selfless by focusing on other people. If you focus on other people, you think, I'm a selfish person, I just need to spend more time serving others. Guess what's going to happen? After a while, you'll start to realize that other people are irritating. And you'll go right back to yourself. The more you focus on people, the more you realize they don't focus back on you. They don't care for you. They don't look after your needs. You feel like you're the only one doing it. They're all too busy with their own lives. And if all your focus is on other people, after a while, selfishness is just going to come right back because at least you get to be with you. But if you focus on Christ, suddenly it doesn't matter how people respond to your love for them. If your focus is on Jesus Christ, a Christocentric life, then suddenly selfishness goes away because there's no room for selfishness where Christ is king of a life. He fills you up. That is the Christocentric faith. How Paul describes our beloved fellow bondservant who is a faithful servant, not of Colossae, not of Hierapolis or Laodicea, but a faithful servant of Christ. We have one mission. Preach Christ. Spokesmen. Spokeswomen. Student teachers. To steadfastly pray victoriously to be selfless because Christ is all and in all. He is everything. And where Jesus is everything, then I can do anything. Epaphras is a a good Greek name. Makes you want to sit down and have some tea and baklava with him. You know? Epaphras! Hey! Did I tell you what his name means? Epaphras in the Greek means lovely. As in... How lovely on the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news. Isaiah 52, verse 7. Beloved fellow bondservants of Jesus, we must not simply be content to be a Bible teaching church. Yeah, I I was called to do this and, and, and we began this process years ago and we have been intent on being a Bible teaching church and we will continue to be a Bible teaching church, but it's not enough. Not nearly enough. It's not enough to then extend and become a servant-hearted fellowship, engaged in missions and service and things like that. You know, uh, just simply to do good works. That's good. That's important. It's not enough. My prayer for us as servants of Christ is that we become a sending church. A sending church that is intent on strengthening, training, and transferring lovely feet. I'm speaking a lot to our younger people. Although, old people, we can do it too. You need to go. You need to go in the name of the Lord. You need to go into the Colossae and the Hierapolis and the Laodicea. You need to go into the towns and the cities of this world and preach and proclaim the gospel. You need to get out of here. With all our love and affection and support... Something we've been talking a lot about among the shepherds is we need to start funneling money towards supporting our young people who are doing mission work in the name of Jesus. We need to start sending people. We need to be active and put our money where our mouth is and do what God has called us to do, to send out Epaphras. To proclaim our transfer. 
from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's what a servant of Christ does. Simple. Basic. And if we do it, we will see a radical explosion of the gospel in Washington State of all places. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for our brother and our fellow servant, Epaphras, who we will meet. We'll see one day. I'm convinced of that. Although on that day, we really won't be paying a whole lot of attention to him. Because, Father, we pray that we might be those of a Christocentric life. Those who are intent on knowing, loving, and serving Jesus with every aspect of who we are. Those who elevate and raise up the name of Jesus before all people. Friends, family, it doesn't matter. Father, we pray for boldness. To be a people of victory. A people who will speak the name, Lord. A people who will selflessly serve. A people who are steadfast in prayer. And a people who are student teachers, not afraid to stick our necks out there and even be wrong, Father. If we will open up the Word and correct ourselves... Be corrected by your Spirit. Father, this this servant-hearted life of Christ, that's what we desire. It's what I long for, and it's what I pray for over our fellowship. And Father, equally I pray. I pray for the young man, the young woman, perhaps the older man or woman, or the teenager sitting here this morning who has not accepted Jesus Christ as Lord. What's so beautiful to me, Father, is you don't force, you don't coerce, you don't trick or bait and switch people into following you, but you do open your hand and you offer Christ. And Father, I pray as, as, as we conclude here that the offer of Jesus Christ by the Spirit of Christ would fill every heart and be received. And I pray for that person who has yet to receive Jesus, to, to really believe in Jesus. I pray that the door will be opened for them to walk through in faith and say, yes, today I will transfer from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand up and worship Him together.